For most people who are home buyers, it is the largest financial decision they'll ever make. So they'll spend a lot of time figuring out how to make an extra half a percent on a fund, but they won't think about the fact that a wrong decision in the way that they buy or sell their home can have a much more significant impact on their finances. That's Alex Goldstein, author of No Nonsense Real Estate. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, he tells Joe and Big Al about seven mistakes that new real estate investors make. The fellas also discuss three ways to sell your real estate, social security taxation, and seven social security mistakes to avoid. They'll also take a look at who pays for weddings these days, and they'll throw in a little Trump tax reform as well. Now here are Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. There is speculation still, Al, um, if Mr. Trump, President Trump, can get this tax reform through. And as we've talked about it over the last several weeks of some of the changes on this one sheet of paper of right, uh, the, proposals. The new, the new tax law one sheet. <laughs> yeah. It's very simple. <laughs> Where it, there's cause and effect. Right. And um, so there's lower tax rates, and and so how do you fund that? I mean, if if our country was flush with with money, you might say, all right, we can lower the rates, and uh, but we're not. Of course, the thought is, if you lower tax rates, then then uh, companies are going to have more profits, individuals are going to have more money, they're going to spend more money, the economy is going to grow faster, which is going to generate more income, which is going to generate more taxes. That's that's the theory. Trickle down, supply side economics, or whatever you want to call it. I was listening to a radio show, and this guy, and he's like, there's no way that this is going to work. You know, we've been doing this trickle-down, you know, economics for years, and it, it, it's not going to work. And here was his side of the story, is that we've all experienced 2007 and eight, right? And what happened? We kind of overspent a little bit. We bought big houses that maybe we couldn't afford. We levered them up. Yeah, they remember bought... the cars? Everyone was driving Hummers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Al and I were in an office that did um, um, real bad mortgages. <laughs> Very. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, part of the, the collapse of our economy was probably some of these these guys in our office probably subprime sub subprime type mortgages and i would i would remember driving into the parking lot and they were probably in their 22 23 lamborghini right making great money maseratis (laughs) and they you look at them and i was like there's they don't look that intelligent how are they driving are they selling drugs yeah well pretty much subprime subprime mortgages yeah right well we overspent, and then there was a little bit of a collapse of large proportions. Yes, the so-called Great Recession. So what do you think has happened since 2008? I think a lot of people learned their lesson a little bit, where, all right, if I'm making a little bit of money, am I going to buy the Maserati? <laughs> because I know I can lose it very, very quickly. I might want to maybe stack that away. It was kind of, in my view, Joe, it was kind of a course correction. Uh, particularly for baby boomers and younger generations too, but the baby boomers sort of got complacent there. Uh, and where you could just make money, you buy real estate, it goes up, you pull money out and either spend it or you buy more real estate. And that, you know, 
the salaries were high, profits were high, stock market was going gangbusters, and it's uh, and I think what happened, I think kind of it had, had to happen. Personally, this is my opinion, which is we kind of need to pull back, needed to pull back a little bit and get a little bit more sensible with sure. our finances. Uh-huh. And, and we have seen ever since that point, savings rates uh, have, have gone up, and I think they've declined a little bit more recently. But uh, and you're seeing some of the debt coming back, not near as badly as it was. But uh, I think that was actually a pretty healthy thing for a lot of baby boomers to kind of reset kind of their thoughts about the future. Right. That maybe this big fat paycheck is not going to continue it's not going to, to be come forever. For forever. Right. And they had to adjust their lifestyles. And, and maybe that was, was okay going into retirement because you don't necessarily have that same income unless you saved a lot of money. So his, I guess, thesis, it was like, all right, well, if we have a lot more cash flow, I, I don't know if we're going to spend it. And w- w- when we did the whole Social Security tax, right? So we, I, I forgot what that law was a few years ago when it went from 6.2 to 4.2. So we got a 2% savings there. Yeah, it was a, it was a temporary reduction in the amount of our Social Security tax that, the, that employees had withheld. And so that was um, a stimulus program to mm-hmm. try to spur the economy that sure. people have excess cash flow. Hopefully they'll spend it. But what right. they did was saved it. Yeah, that's, that's in, in effect what happened. Right. Right. And so... <clears throat> So his thought process is like, well, the people that got, you know, that are were making that money, now they're making the money again. Are they going to be buying the Lamborghinis and Maseratis? Maybe, but I think there's going to be a larger portion um, than before, right? even though it still might be the minority. Well, they're not going to be flushing the money back into the economy. They might right. be more or less saving it. Right. So. But there's always give and take with this. And so let's say if they do lower tax rates, there's, if you run the numbers, right, we still have things to purchase, such as military and uh, roads yeah. and police. And, and we've, got, we've committed to, uh, to programs like Social Security and Medicare. Right. right. And so in what, Kimbledger's tax letter, they're looking at some potential ways to cut some of this. Well, yeah, Joe. And, and the reason is because there is a pretty big debate on whether the trickle-down economics is going to be enough to cover the tax breaks, uh, uh, the lower taxes. And so they're looking at other ways, I guess, to, to try to create more revenue. And, and one of the ways is looking at pension plans. For example, right now we have a 401k and a 403b limit of $18,000 per year that you can contribute. You can contribute pre-tax, and which means it reduces your taxable salary, goes into the 401k or 403b, it grows tax-deferred, and when you pull the money out in retirement, then, then it's taxable then. Also, we know that if you're 50 and older, you can add another $6,000. So that's $24,000. And so one of the proposals, this was back from the um, Comprehensive Tax Reform Plan of 2014. This is the Ways and Means Committee led by um, Chairman David Camp. And uh, this is one of their thoughts is, you know, we'll keep the $18,000 and $6,000, but you can only do half pre-tax. The other half has to be a Roth 401k, meaning that you can only get a tax deduction for half of that contribution. So that's that's uh, that's actually one of the more controversial uh, ideas. Uh, however, interestingly enough, that, that's yet another, if, if they do that, that's yet another example of fixing today to the detriment of tomorrow. I, I think... <laughs> The, who's ever coming up with this have never ran any type of projection. No, they're looking at their next four years in office. Exactly. And that's it. And, and you know what? I think that would be an awesome thing. 
Yeah. I mean, if more people put more money in Roth, their money would stretch out that much further. And I, there's human behavior, and then there's numbers. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And if you take a look at the people that are saving dollars um, versus people that are not saving dollars, it's not they're not saving money because of the tax deduction. It's because they're living paycheck to paycheck, and there's not enough information and education for them to save money. Right. If people are in their highest tax brackets... And if they would go back and say, all right, well, I take that tax deduction, or now I have this big pot of money that's all taxed at ordinary income versus forego that tax deduction, now it's all tax-free to me, I, I would guess that most of the people that we see that have millions in retirement accounts said, you know what, yeah, that tax deduction was fine at the time, but I really wish all this money was in Roths. Right, and we see that today. because mm-hmm. they now are seeing the light, and they're like, all right, well, here, I need to get some of this diversified. I need to get money into Roths. I need to get money into non-qualifying accounts. And so they're doing this. It, I think it's only going to help us, Yeah, but it's going to, you know, as, as the consumer or as the retiree. Right. But you want how many projections have we ran? Yeah, thousands. Thousands and thousands. In looking at projection after projection, there is significantly more dollars if the money's in the Roth because of compounding growth of that account tax-free that never has to be pulled out. And Joe, you can run a simple analysis to say, you know what, I'm in the same tax bracket today as retirement. In some cases, maybe I'm in a higher bracket than retirement. And you could say, well, then you shouldn't do a Roth IRA. But that presumes that you take the tax deduction and you save the difference. And the truth is nobody does that. And when you run it, it it's the math as far as human behavior, you right. actually get a completely different result, which is what you've been saying for quite some time. And I, and I tend to agree with that. Right. It, yeah. If you save the deduction. So what I'm saying here is that, all right, you save $10,000, you get $2,500 tax deduction. All right, then you take that $2,500 and you save it. Mm-hmm. But no, they're saving the $10,000 into their 401k plan and everything else is getting spent. Yeah, I'd rather have you put $10,000 in a Roth, not get that tax deduction, and, and you won't spend it because you don't have it. You don't have it, right. <laughs> it's forced savings. That's correct. And then when you have the money down the road, it's 100% tax-free. And so with all this talk of saying, all right, well, let's go more Roth, I'm, I'm all for it. But I think then they're going to mess with it down the road, potentially, well, because they, then if they run the numbers... It's it's it'll blow them up. Yeah, related to that, Joe, is they're talking about getting rid of the traditional IRA altogether and only a Roth IRA. It's the same thing. In other words, you, you forego the tax deduction. You you don't get a tax deduction today, but all future growth is uh, tax-free. And it's, uh, sure, it would help now, but uh, 10, 20, 30 years down the road, it's a, it's a time bomb for the government. <laughs> Right. Right? Because all of a sudden, all that growth is not taxed. Because right today, there's $24 trillion, give or take a couple of bucks, in retirement accounts that went in pre-tax, that now the IRS can get their tax money. That's a ton of dough. If there's $24 trillion in Roths, it's over. Yeah. There's no tax revenue to, to generate. <laughs> So, um, stay tuned. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, the, the, monkeying around with the retirement plans is, is I don't know. That's risky business. It's tricky, and and sometimes they're talking about even even uh, reducing the amount you can put in, which may, basically makes our retirement issue that much bigger because people aren't saving enough. I mean, don't you want to encourage more retirement right. saving? I mean, the money's got to come somewhere. Right. So then you have all these people. To, I mean, we've already seen the numbers and the statistics of the lack of savings. I'm not going to go there. But if it 
disincentivize people from saving because I don't have an option anymore to put money into any account. And we know, too, is that if someone has a 401k plan, Roth or traditional versus someone that doesn't, the person with the 401k plan has significantly more assets because it was easier for that individual to save. And so if they're thinking, all right, well, let's take this incentive away, well, then no one's going to save. Uh, you got to look at the human behavior behind it besides just the numbers. Right. If they looked at that, they might come up with something pretty solid. Right. But then they wouldn't agree. That's the problem. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> well, they're not agreeing now, so what's the difference? That's what I'm saying. It's been three decades since the last major tax reform, but this could be about to change in a major way. That said, the president and the Republican Party are still divided on a number of key policy questions. Visit the White Papers section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to download the White Paper Tax Reform, Trump versus the House GOP, for a deeper look into the proposals. How might income tax, estate tax, and business tax change? Are your tax strategies at risk? Download the Tax Reform White Paper to find out more. Visit the white paper section of the Learning Center at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We got Alex Goldstein on the line. Wrote a book, No Nonsense Real Estate. Alan, you've been a real estate investor for a couple of days, haven't you? I have. I've been. I've, I've owned investment properties for about 35 years. So I'm going to find out all the mistakes that uh, I already know a ton of mistakes that I've made, but I'll find out the rest from Alex. I'm sure. Yeah, he's going to blow you up. Bud. I know, right? <laughs> hey, Alex. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's terrific to be here. Hey, well, let's dive in. No nonsense, real estate. What made you write the book? Tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, what are some things that we can move forward with? Sure. Well, like Alan, I was a real estate investor for a long time. And like Alan, never, ever made a mistake. Not one. Until I did. (laughs) Yeah. Until I did. Right. And, you know, got hit pretty hard by the last uh, down cycle. And when everybody was kind of running for the exit, it occurred to me that all of the representations I'd had at that time who was supposed to advise me and help me protect myself, was nowhere to be found. And it was uh, disheartening, to say the least. And I realized that, hey, you know what? People need better advice here and a better understanding of what they're doing. And so that's what this is really about, is to help people better understand these important financial decisions they're making in the form of real estate and to know enough to not make the big mistakes and to do a better job of hiring the right people. What do you think is the biggest or the most common mistakes people are making? Well, I think a very common mistake that people make is not even recognizing that this is a huge financial decision for them. Um, For for most people who are home buyers, uh, at least in the United States, it is the largest financial decision they'll ever make. And so they'll spend a lot of time, you know, reading the Wall Street Journal and figuring out how to make an extra half a percent on a fund, but they won't think about the fact that a wrong decision uh, in the way that they buy or sell their home can have a much more significant impact on their finances, not to mention the quality of life that their family enjoys. Do you think people have learned their lesson from 2008 in a sense of, I, I think a lot of individuals might have overbought because the cost of uh, you know, anyone could basically get a loan, um, or, or, or you, what, what? What are you seeing now? Like, I would imagine people learned a little bit, but are, are those mistakes coming back? Or, well, I think that you know, we have to remember that in the last cycle, the banks were the great enablers. You know, they were like the the drug pushers there 
giving everybody, you know, drugs. They're like, hey, you know, take it today and pay us tomorrow kind of thing. And everybody was, you know, getting addicted to this easy money. And so I remember at one point I went into a Starbucks and the barista was telling me that she had just purchased her third home uh, in Scottsdale. And this third home was $750,000. Now, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, let me understand the underwriting there, right? So she's making, I, I think it's $12 an hour or something plus benefits and buying millions of dollars worth of real estate. So with that kind of access to capital, people got pretty crazy. Where we are today is an environment where the standards are much tighter. So even if people want to make dumb decisions, they can't make decisions that are quite as colossally stupid as they could back in the day. But they can still make decisions that can have a long-term impact on their financial future and their family's lifestyle. Hey, let's start with buying your home. So how how much of buying a home would you say is for the investment side versus uh, quality of life? And, And should it be mostly quality of life? Or what's your view on that? Well, the, the way that I encourage people to look at it, because, I mean, ultimately it comes down to budgeting. People are thinking, okay, what's the right amount of money to spend on a house? Because if it's an investment, maybe I'll invest more. If it's just going to be consumption, maybe I should be more conservative. And I take a different viewpoint on that. I look at the time frame. I say if you're going to be making a real estate decision that you can live with for 10 years or longer, then I think that you should just get what you want to get but get it in the most intelligent fashion. If you're in a situation where you may have a change in the size of your family or a job or something like that, and you may have to move in, say, two years or four years or something along those lines, I advise people to be much more conservative and to buy maybe less house than they'd like because the market may put them in a situation where it's going to be a lot tougher for them to move if they've overbought. So I don't know if that directly answers your question, but that's the way I typically advise my clients. Well, how, how about an investment property? What, what would you recommend? You and I have been investors for quite some time, and it's, it's a lot of work. And what, what do you invest those that kind of think that real estate investing is easy? They, they watch it on late night TV, and they think, yeah, this anyone can do it. Yeah, it's definitely not. And, and the interesting thing, too, is, is that when most people want to get into some type of investment, whether it's real estate, stocks, Bitcoin, whatever, it seems that when most people are talking about it, it's the worst possible time to get involved. And it's not just from the standpoint that prices are higher, but in the case of being a real estate investor, if you're looking to fix and flip, I mean, good luck getting a good crew who's going to actually do what they say on any kind of a budget in this environment. I mean, you've got, you're competing with so many people that are out there looking for that talent and they're willing to pay up. So there is, I think, a certain naivety when people watch a show and see this dramatic transformation take place before their eyes in a matter of, you know, 10 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever it is, and it leaves them uh, with a really skewed perception of what it's really going to be like once they get into it. And once you've bought that property, you know, you're in it. (laughs) You know, I love, you know, the flip or flop and what's that one in Texas? Um, yeah, I know who you mean. Fixer upper. Yeah, right. So they're buying these homes for seventy grand, and then all of a sudden they turn around and it's like a mansion, <laughs> and it takes them three days. I mean, and it's like, well, here was your all-in budget of one hundred fifty thousand. But I'm like, this is awesome. I'm going to do this. <laughs> or then you watch these other flipper floppers, you know, shows, and then it's okay. Well, you got this girl in um, college trying to pay her tuition, 
And so she's like, well, I'm going to buy this condo and I'm going to repaint it. And, you know, and two weeks later, I'm going to sell it at a $50,000 profit. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Right, Alex? I mean, that that makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense, like all things, until it doesn't make sense. <laughs> and so what what people are doing when they're when they're taking that sort of a mentality, they're only looking at the upside. And there clearly is upside to investing in real estate. If you know what you're doing and you buy right, you can make a lot of money in real estate. But market conditions can change very quickly, and people also need to be realistic about what's their skill set. So to me, I look at it and think, well, if I want to be invested in real estate, and I'm going to be honest with myself about my abilities, um, I'm going to take a more conservative approach. So to me, I think the smart thing for people to do is if they're going to attempt a fix and flip, I again look at the time horizon. And if you've never done a fix and flip, just try doing a remodel on the home you're in right now. You know, get through that before you start turning it into investment. Because at least if you're if you're doing some kind of a major remodel on the home you're in and you mess up, well, you're gonna enjoy your house more. So even if it costs you more than you thought, you're not gonna be in a catastrophic financial situation. The problem with a lot of these fix and flips is that people build in these totally unrealistic budgets and totally unrealistic time frames for turning things around, and now they're stuck with this you know, cash black hole that's just eating up money every month and going to get worse and worse. At least if people do that with their own home, you know, they don't wind up in that position to the same extent. And I think it also teaches them a lesson to say, am I really the type of person and do I really have the type of connections that can successfully do a remodel? Because if you get aggravated or have problems just trying to do it with your own residence, it's safe to say that you're not going to be able to compete with the efficiency and the skill of professional investors in your market. You know, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Uh, no pun intended with the fixer-upper, but Alan and I have clients that are contractors you know, that build apartment buildings. Uh, they build gas stations. They build and everything else in between where they have the access to materials at a very low cost. They have access to a crew on the weekends at a very low cost. And so they could go in and they could buy homes and they can flip them out because they already have the manpower and they already have the know-how and they have the skill set. But if I'm sitting on my couch watching and saying, hey, you know what, I want to do a flip, I think where I've seen people run into problems is that they don't have that background at all, and they're looking to make a quick buck, and then they put all the capital that they have into that one home, and it's everything is sitting there, as you said, then it just turns into a black hole, and it kind of blows up on them. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing I think people don't realize, too, is just how competitive it is to get a really great crew who's going to actually do what you want them to do on time and on budget. I mean, I think every single person who has ever done this has encountered the circumstances where they find someone great until suddenly they're not great. You know, it's like, hey, everything's going, and then wait, nobody's showing up, right? And to get a really great crew who's going to do, you know, solid work and anything close to the budget you want, those people are in tremendous demand. And so, in a sense, you as the investor are auditioning for them because they have a choice of different people they can work with. And, you know, I'm thinking if I'm a contractor, who do I want to work with? Do I want to work with somebody who has fixed and flipped 500 homes, has a great proven track record, knows their numbers, and is not going to mess around with me versus somebody who said, hey, I saw a great show on TV and I want to get into this? I mean, if you're a contractor, you're going to run 
from that person who has no experience. And the person who's going to say yes is probably going to be somebody who can't get work elsewhere for a good reason. Your Money, Your Wealth brings you actionable advice to help you invest and retire successfully, but that's only part of the equation. How do you leave a lasting legacy for the ones you love? Learn 10 gruesome estate planning mistakes to avoid at our free webinar, Tuesday, July 11th at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. Visit purefinancial.com slash estate to register. Nicole Newman, attorney at law, and Joe Anderson, CFP, will answer questions like, should you have a will or a trust? How do you protect your assets from probate, in-laws, creditors, predators, and the expenses of long-term care? How do changes in estate tax law impact your existing estate plan? Visit purefinancial.com estate to sign up now for our free webinar, 10 Gruesome Estate Planning Mistakes to Avoid, Tuesday, July 11th at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. That's purefinancial.com estate. Welcome back to the show. The show's called Your Money, Your Wealth. Joe Anderson, Big Al, hanging out here. Uh, we're talking to Alex Goldstein. We're talking real estate, Alan, your favorite topic. Yes, we are. Let's switch gears. Let's talk about, let's say if I wanted to buy an investment property. And I think sometimes people don't understand uh, the numbers, is that we live here in Southern California. The average cost of a home is... I don't know, seven hundred grand, and so they're like, "All right, well, here I'm going to buy a whole, you know, some some rental single family residence in San Diego and rent them out." Well, th- those numbers don't necessarily jive for income. They, they, it might be fine for growth if you lever. Um, but talk about what people should look at. Let's say if they wanted to get into real estate as investment uh, property. Well, you know, I'm I'm a cash flow guy um, because I got burned in speculation. Uh, in the down cycle. So for me, it's like for the rest of my life, I'll never look at a real estate investment for appreciation. <laughs> you know, I just want to know about the cash flow. Having said that, it's most important for people to get comfortable with, you know, what do they need? Because I have, you know, clients that have fabulous cash flow and they don't need more cash flow. So for them, it really is about appreciation. So the advice that I'm going to give a client in that particular position is going to be different from the sort of quote-unquote advice I'd give myself in terms of how to structure an investment. That said, the most conservative way to invest in real estate is to buy something for cash and to collect cash flow. If you introduce leverage or if you are counting on uh, appreciation and speculation to be your return, you're taking on more risk. And in a booming market, you can make more money that way, but in a down market, you can also lose more money. Yeah, it goes both ways. And I think you're, in Arizona, Texas, it's a lot easier to invest for cash flow. It's it's much trickier in Southern California. And that's that's our listeners. That's that's kind of the dilemma that they have. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, probably for them, what you're discussing in terms of fix and flip is probably a better avenue to go with. But again, if they're going to do it themselves, they should start where they live. And the other alternative is to, you know, you don't necessarily have to do it yourself. I mean, I'm sure that there are very successful fix and flippers in every market who can use more capital to fund their deals. And so, you know, becoming a lender and participating in that fashion may be a smarter option for people in markets where cash flow just isn't going to happen. So can you go through the basics on the on the finances? You, you, want, you, you see a rental you want to buy. What do you look at in terms of the numbers to decide whether this is a good deal? Well, again, I, I like to look at cash flow. So it really comes down to, you know, for every dollar that's invested in that property, you know, how many dollars are going to come out in terms of income after all the expenses have been taken care of. And there is a huge differential between markets in the country um, 
in terms of that level of cash flow, or as we say in the industry, the cap rate. So where you choose to invest can be driven by how important that cap rate is for you. Um, you know, investors who are buying single-family homes in Ohio are going to get a much higher cap rate than any investor who's buying a single-family home to rent out in Southern California. Um, so the implication there is that the appreciation in Southern California will make up for that cash flow. And if you believe that, then maybe you should stay in Southern California. To me, I'd, you know, I'd rather take an Ohio deal or an Arizona deal and get paid from the beginning than you know, bank on future appreciation. So what would be a good cap rate in Arizona? Uh, in Arizona, I think you can, you can make deals happen in the 5 to 7% range. Okay. So, and just for our listeners, so that's net cash flow, net profits divided by the cost of the property. Correct. So if you buy a property for, you know, a million dollars, then you can expect to get fifty to $70,000 out of that property. Right. And, and of course, the problem in Southern California is the cap rates are probably two and a half or maybe three. Yeah, most unless there's in, there's other kind of pockets. There, there are. I mean, the the cheaper neighborhoods. Why don't we talk about that? Because a lot of people want to buy a luxury home and figure this is a great rental because people want to live there. Compare that versus kind of a, you know, kind of a just a bread and butter type of neighborhood. Well, in general, as you go up the ladder in terms of uh, price point, you don't necessarily see a commensurate increase in the rental rate. Now there can be certain nuances to that, depending on which market you're in and where there's demand. So if you live in a place where there's a very obvious kind of a tourist attraction, you know, or if it's like right on the water or something like that, where you always have high uh, demand for short-term high-dollar vacation rentals, that can be a bit of an exception. But if you're just looking at getting in a tenant who's going to be there for, you know, a year or two years or three years and be a steady source of cash flow, you typically do better um, at the more modestly priced homes because, you know, the million-dollar home isn't necessarily going to have 10 times the rent of the $100,000 home. Yeah, that's such a great point, and I think that's where people get confused. <laughs> that, they do, and that happened in San Diego, downtown San Diego. People were buying million-dollar condos and have big negative cash flows, but they were going up 2% a month. So it's like, what's the problem Right until it, that until, changed? Yes. Until that million dollar condo was selling for two hundred grand. Right. So, hey, Alex, let's say if I want to sell my home, what are some tips that you can give myself or our listeners? Uh, how, how? What are some mistakes that people make when they sell, and how? How do I get top dollar? Well, I think that people should be more honest about how they walk into a home and look at it as a buyer, because I see people walking into homes when they're thinking about buying. And they're hypercritical of everything. They will look at every last little detail and they'll knock a house out because it's something that, in my opinion, is fairly minor to, to fix. However, when they are selling their own home, they tend to look at it like, oh, my house is great and any negative they'll overlook because they'll see how great my house is. And so what I tell people to do is just to really be honest about how you talk about homes as a buyer and try to look at your own home in that way and to not overlook things because most likely most of the buyers won't. Now, I know that in certain markets like Southern California, you know, there's so much activity that you can be a little lazy. But if you're in a more balanced market or if you're having trouble selling your home, then the first place to start is just with a gut check about, okay, what's wrong with this property and what can I do to make it more appealing to my most likely buyer? 
Yeah, we, we had a neighbor recently that did staging, and they had a company come in and bring in new furniture and photos and, and touch-up paint, and they got a huge premium for the home, I think. Yeah, that can, that can work really well. I mean, sometimes staging is a great idea, but sometimes it's not necessary. And, and what I try to do whenever I'm counseling a client is to come up with an idea of who is their most likely buyer. So do we have an indication? Is this person most likely going to be somebody who wants a turnkey, move-in ready home, they got small kids and they won't be willing to remodel a thing? Or is this the type of a neighborhood and area where there's lots of people coming in and doing wholesale remodels and they really don't care what it's like? So you want to be focused on that, that end buyer in order to to do the right thing by the property. Because if you if you spend money on staging a home that's just going to be torn down or gutted, you know, it's probably a waste of money. Conversely, if everybody who's walking into an open house is somebody who says, yeah, I don't want to have to lift a finger, well, then you're going to want to stage it as best you possibly can. We're talking to Alex Goldstein. He's featured, what, the New York Times, the Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, and now your money, your wealth. <laughs> That's right. That's the four big ones. <laughs> yeah, right there. That's all you need. You made it, brother. Where can people find you? Where can people get your book? Where can they get more information on you? Sure. Uh, if people want to uh, learn more about the book or to contact me, they can go to my website, which is nonsensebook.com. That's nonsensebook.com. And um, I'd be happy to get them a free chapter or uh, reach out and talk to them about any of their needs or point them in the right direction. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alex. That's Alex Goldstein. Can your portfolio stand up to a stress test? Find out. Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com and sign up for a free financial assessment with a certified financial planner who will stress test your portfolio. Are you on track for retirement? How much money will you need in retirement? How much income can you get from your portfolio? What social security strategies are available to you? Are your investments aligned with your goals? Stress test your portfolio. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Alan, real estate has done quite well recently. It has, Joe. And it's come back a little bit it, since the awful 2008-9. And the properties that I own, I, I bought them. Some go way up, some go way down. Now they're back up again. So it's it's worked out all right. And, and for a lot of people, Joe, when you get to a point as an investor, your rental properties, it's like at, at some point, many times you think, well, gosh, I don't really want this property anymore. I'd, I'd love to have another property, maybe a bigger property. Maybe, I, maybe I've got a little condo and I'd like to buy a house or, or maybe a small apartment, that's something that has better cash flow or something that's closer to home or any number of reasons why you might want to switch your rental properties. Problem, though, is when you sell a property at a gain, you got to pay all kinds of capital gain taxes. And it gets worse than that. You have to pay depreciation recapture because when you buy a property, some of that property is, is considered building. And the building, if it's a residential property, the IRS lets you depreciate that or deduct it over 27 and a half years. So if you've owned that property for 10 years, you've taken a lot of depreciation. You got some tax benefits. Now you got to pay those tax benefits back. Plus, by the way, the gain, you hopefully sold it for more than you bought it for. You got to pay taxes there. You know, it's funny. I, this was probably 2000. Six, when we were doing those workshops yes, around town, I remember of, on, on real estate investing and or um, 
uh, real estate disposition planning. Mm-hmm. So Al and I were on the road speaking to individuals, and we would get a ton of people there. Yeah, because it was um, hot back then. But yeah. it, then no one would act because they thought that real estate was going to continue to go through the roof. Right, exactly. And so we came up with... Um, a workshop that I think we discussed like four or five ways we did we to, did to sell your real estate to mitigate or to to help with the overall tax bite we did Joe and and of course the first one as I was describing it's just an outright sale and then you just pay the tax now if uh, you're older and you've had rental properties for a while and one of the spouses dies the survivor gets in California a full step up in basis which means they can sell that property and pay no tax whatsoever so if you're an older couple and you've got property that's highly appreciated you don't necessarily want to sell it while you both are living because you pay a lot of tax so that's one thing second way is to do what's called an installment sale which means I'm, I'm selling the property but instead of receiving all my cash now I'm gonna receive some of it over time I become kind of like the bank, if you will. And so whoever I sell it to, the buyer, makes monthly payments to me. And as they make payments, as they make principal payments, I start I pay off a percentage of the gain that way as well. So that's that's another way to go. That has all kinds of issues because if they don't make payments, then you got to foreclose on the property to get the property back. And a lot of people don't necessarily want to do that. Uh, another really good one, though, Joe, is 1031 exchange. So you can actually sell one rental and buy another rental and defer that gain into the rental number two and pay no current taxation. So now, you would do this to maybe get something closer. Maybe it's better cash flow. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's, uh, you know... I don't know. Whatever your goals are, I, I, a lot of people. In fact, in the in the the like the two thousand four, two thousand five, uh, two thousand three, two range, they were buying property out of state, and and uh, now it's they, they there's quite a cycle they went through depending upon where they bought. But now, in many cases, there are gains. They sell it because it's too hard to manage out of state, so they come back to California. So the ten thirty one exchange, it's actually not that difficult. What happens is after you sell the property. You've got 45 days to identify three potential replacement properties, and you have to do that with your your exchange accommodator. This is a third party that actually holds the money. So you sell the first property, and the money out of escrow cannot go to you. If it goes to you, even for a second, it's a blown exchange. It has to go to a qualified intermediary that's a third party. So you want to make sure that they're bonded and have the strength, right? You don't just go to anybody to do this. But you go to this exchange accommodator, and then in 45 days, you identify Identify three potential properties, and six months after close of escrow, you have to actually buy one of those three properties. And as long as it's rental, rental for rental, and as long as it costs at least as much as the property that you sold, you pay no current tax. So whatever that deferred gain is just rolls into the second property. And sometimes people say, well, what's the point? I'm going to have to pay taxes on that anyway. Well, the, the point is, if you hold the property for the rest of your life and you pass away, your kids will get it. With a full step up in basis, there is no tax to pay. And in the meantime, you sold a property that you didn't really want, and you got one, hopefully, that you did want. So that's the real advantage or there. Or some people might have 10 different single-family residents. Yeah. Right? Too hard to manage. It's, they're all over the place. They could exchange all of those into one apartment building. They could. Now, that's tricky yeah, because you'd have to sell 10 all within the same time frame. So you probably have to fire sale, sale some of them. <laughs> 
But yeah, you can do In that. In theory, it sounds good. You can sell 10 properties and buy one. You can sell one property and buy 10. It doesn't really matter. And they're really, uh, it has to be like kind exchange, but they're real liberal. Like you can sell a condo and buy a house or sell a house and buy an apartment or sell a commercial property and buy a residential apartment, whatever. There's, there's, it's, as long as it's a rental property, that's considered like kind. And it has to be the same value or higher. If it's lower, right. then there's boot. There's boot, and let's say your gain is five hundred thousand, and you tried to do a replacement property, and you, you almost did. You got fifty thousand dollars short. Well, that fifty thousand dollars is going to be boot because it ends up in your pocket, right? And you have to pay tax on that fifty grand. Why they come up with boot? I don't know. That's <laughs> I have no idea where that term came from. <laughs> boot. You got booted. <laughs> Your Money, Your Wealth isn't just a podcast, it's also a TV show. Check out Your Money, Your Wealth on YouTube to see Joe and Big Al talking about planning for retirement over your entire lifespan, investing biases you may not realize you have, social security claiming strategies, and... Pure financial feud. What is the percentage of social security beneficiaries that are women? Uh, Mike? I'm going to go 45%. That is incorrect. Oh, Joe, you have a guess? I had no idea what the question was. <laughs> Watch clips of the Your Money, Your Wealth TV show. Just search YouTube for Pure Financial Advisors and Your Money, Your Wealth. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture. In handy bullet point format. This week, don't make these seven social security mistakes. Joe number one is thinking you don't qualify for benefits. Because we, we know, right, you have to work 10 years, that's 40 quarters, you know, four, four quarters per year, right? 40 quarters or 10 years to be able to qualify for Social Security benefits. But let's say you haven't worked 40 quarters, but you're married to somebody that has worked 40 quarters, you can receive a spousal benefit. Or you're married to somebody that passed away, you can receive a survivor benefit or you were married to somebody, now you're divorced, you were married at least 10 years, you could get a, a, a spousal benefit there as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so I think the ex-spouse one is the most interesting, is that now I was married for 15 years, I'm divorced, and I'm looking to claim Social Security benefit, and maybe my spouse had a lot larger income than I did, and I'm looking at my benefit, well, it might make sense to look at your ex-spouse's benefit because you're still entitled to half of their benefit or yours, whichever's larger. So look into that because you can claim on an ex-spouse. Now, if you're married twice and you're no longer married, as long as you were married at least 40 quarters or 10 years to each individual, then you can claim on the higher of those two. So... Just a little bit of homework there in, so, in so, the sense of making sure that you maximize your benefit. So what happens if you're, you were married twice and now you're married a third time? Well, then you would claim on your current spouse's benefit. You can't benefit. go back to the, the, rich, the second rich husband. Right, yeah. If you had a rich, <laughs> I, I had a rich wife and then she dumped me and then now I'm you know with someone broke. Yeah. No, it's, I, I can't go back. I, I just don't get married you to could, that other person. I suppose you could live together. But you, you could. Can't. You can't legally get married. That blows that strategy. That would blow up that spousal benefit. Got yes. it. You can claim a survivor benefit. However, um, let's say if you're married and someone passed, okay, you can, and then you remarry, but you have to remarry after age 60. All right. So you'd have to wait a few years on that one. 
Yeah, about 40. <laughs> 20 years. I'm already, already at that threshold. <laughs> so you're good. I'm good. Yeah. All right. If I need to remarry, I can use hands. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> so, all right. Number two is uh, thinking that your benefits will be substantial. So the the, the average so what, uh, thirteen hundred bucks a month. Yeah, thirteen sixty five is the average, which is about sixteen thousand three hundred eighty per year. That's the average of earnings. Uh, now, that's an average of people that uh, have been retired for quite some time. If you look, but even if you look at the maximums, well, it's double Joe, that, about thirty. Yeah, it's uh, the maximum this year is two thousand six hundred eighty seven dollars. That's about thirty two thousand. So that's not exactly. Uh, a high lifestyle, right? Right. Well, yeah, it depends on what you're currently living on. Social Security was never meant to be to replace 100% of your income. Right. You know? um, it, it, it replaces a lot more of lower-waged income earners and significantly less to higher-waged income earners. So, and it's it was built by design, you know, to make sure that there was some threshold of income to you know just to to, to keep people off the streets as the Great Depression. Yeah, and and that is happening in some cases. We know the latest stats from Social Security Administration is that twenty one percent of married couples, Social Security income is ninety percent or more of their income. And when you look at single unmarried, it's about forty three percent, close to half of single uh, single individuals in our country receiving Social Security. That's 90% or more of their income. But I don't think people are shocked. They're like, damn, I thought I was going to receive like 80 grand a year. You know, I think most people n- know what their benefit is going to be. I, I agree. I or, mean, you know, because you get these statements. And, right. And, and, you know, the Social Security Administration, you're, you're too young to know this, but they probably, but they, they every, I forget whether it's every year, every few years, they sent you the benefit statement yep. and then they, then they stopped doing it. They said you had to go online, which I did. It was very easy. SSA.gov. But now, um, I think it's when you're 60, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they start, they'll start sending it, they every start year sending it again. Mm-hmm. So hey, I, they'll I they'll send it every five years now. Every five is yep. what it is, yeah. Even before 60, and then once you right. reach 60, then they'll send it to you every year. Every year. But you can go online. It's, it's very easy to see. Joe, the, the number three, third mistake is assuming you have to start collecting benefits at 65. I mean, how many people do we talk to? When are you going to retire? 65. 65, 65. And that's and, not even full retirement age. And they, well, full they, retirement age is 66 in two months. Yeah. Well, they got that because it used to be full retirement right. age. And it's also the age where you can qualify for Medicare. So they kind of think that's when you're supposed to retire. Sometimes people think they can't work after 65. Right. Well, yeah, if you're an airline pilot. <laughs> <laughs> right? Certain jobs, maybe. Certain, certain jobs. But um, no, you can still work. And then you can still collect your Social Security benefit and still have employment income. As long as you're full retirement age. Yeah, and that's that's a confusing fact right there. So full retirement age right now, this year, 66 years and two months. So if you're 66 years and two months, you can start receiving Social Security benefits, and you can keep 100% of the benefits irregardless of your salary. Because people think, well, how much can I earn and still keep my benefits? Well, that's if you're younger than 66 and if two months. If you claim your benefits early. So if you take it at 62, that's the earliest that you can take a retirement benefit. And if you do take it at 62, and you have wages of 16900 or less, they're not going to take anything back. Right. But then any dollar figure over that 16900 threshold, every $2 earned, they take a buck back. And it's not like they steal it from you. That 
benefits. They just recalculate that you never took the benefits. Social Security runs their benefits on a monthly basis. So it's it gets a little bit complicated, uh, but just understand that if you are making good wages, it doesn't make sense to take your benefit early because every $2 that you earned over that 16900 threshold, they're going to take a buck back. Once you reach the year of your full retirement age, it's about 44000 bucks. And so let's say my birthday's in June, I retire in January, right, my full retirement age year, and then I claim my benefit in January. All right, well, that's fine. I'm taking it early because my birthday is in June, right. so I'm going to see a, see a small reduction in benefit. But if I was still working, if I made more than $44,000 in that six-month time period, then every $3 earned, they'll take a dollar back. Right. So, so just be careful when you start claiming it, because here's what happens. You claim it at 62, you're still working, or let's say you go back to work. Okay, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're still going to give you your benefit because they don't know you're working until you file your tax return. Right. And then next April, you file your tax return. Social Security Administration gets it and says, "What the hell are you doing, Clopine? Right? You're working <laughs> well, they, here." They they actually want you to tell them, but they they it doesn't often happen. Right. Until they get the tax return, and then they'll say, "Okay, well then they'll then the following you you retire, you're waiting for that Social Security to check to come in, and yeah. guess what? You're not going to get it." Yeah, and it's dollar for dollar until they get paid back. It's not proration. Right. So if you got paid six grand too much, then the first six thousand of your next year's Social Security benefits is zero. Right. Yeah, so that's how that works. Fourth mistake, Joe, is is collecting benefits too early. And we see all this, this all the time. I mean, we know that the stats, about 50% of men and women claim their benefits at 62. That's the absolute youngest age you can do it, which means you're going to get a 25% roughly less benefit for life on a monthly basis compared to full retirement age. And then we, we know that about 80% of men and women claim benefits actually even before full retirement age. So it's like it's like the majority of people are kind of shortchanging what the future is going to be. And if I just tell you one little thing, of course, it's different for everybody, so I'm not going to say everyone should wait until 70, which is the latest age, but the actuarial tables were, came out in the 1980s, meaning that life expectancy at that time was a lot shorter. So now, if you have normal life expectancy or better, you're much better off waiting. You're going to get a lot more money waiting than you are taking it early. Right, because the life expectancy tables of the 80s, it didn't matter if you took it at 62, 65, or 70. You got the, roughly the same amount of money out of the pool, right? But now we're living a lot longer... And so if I wait, I get a higher benefit, and I get that higher benefit for a longer period of time. That's key components of your decision-making process. It is key. And we know a 65-year-old male right now, uh, is that life expectancy average is 84, and a woman is about 88. That's today. That's today. Just wait. 20 years. Let's say you're in your 40s, Joe. By the time you get there, it's going to be probably 95. Right? According to Rick Edelman, it's it's 170. 120. (laughs) I'll be going back to school, finding a new trade. (laughs) You will. (laughs) So, uh, all right. Uh, How many more do you got? I got three more. Deb, can we go out three more? Let's go three more. All right. We'll do three more. Uh, Number five is... um, 
not making the, the most of the benefit formula. And what they're getting at there, Joe, is how benefits are calculated. It's calculated on your, your highest 35 years. And let's say, for example, you work 28 years. Just so, so that means seven years in that example will be calculated as zero, right? So even if you work a little bit those seven years, you're going to end up with a higher benefit right. than, than because it's the average of 35 years. Yeah, and then sometimes people get confused. 35 years is still a long time. Yeah. And so, well, if I work one more year, is that going to really increase my benefit? Well, it's a 35-year average. It depends. Yeah, it might a little, right? Right. 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 Uh, number six is not sharing a strategy with your spouse. And we talked about that before. Is there spousal benefits? Make sure that you're looking at that because the spousal benefit means that you can take the higher of your benefit or half of your spouse's. And in many cases, that's a better way to go. Right? Yeah, you, you got the spousal, you got the survivor benefit. So in a rule of thumb type planning you, the person with the higher benefit should push theirs out just to protect their surviving spouse. Yeah, because when it's when it's a surviving spouse, then it's the highest of benefits the survivor gets, whether it's their own or their spouse's. So yeah, you kind of do, if you can afford it, you kind of want to push out that highest benefit yeah, because for a couple. If, if that spouse dies, just know that Social Security benefit, well, one of them is going to go. Right. So you want to make sure that at least there's the highest benefit possible, yeah, sure. because then now you're on one income versus two Social Security yeah, incomes. Yeah, exactly. And Joe, number seven is assuming that Social Security will end soon. How many times have we heard that? You know, well, I'm not even going to plan for it because it's not going to be around. In fact, I don't know. They, been, they even tell us in 2034, it's going to be out of money. 20 years I've almost been doing this. <laughs> so I've heard it every year since then. Right, right. And the truth is, if they, if they don't make any changes whatsoever, then you, you will get Roughly 80% of your benefit, not 100%. That's if they make no changes. The reason it's not bankrupt, because they're still collecting Social Security receipts from those workers. It just wouldn't be enough to pay the 100% benefit. But the truth is, they've done this before. They they extend the retirement age. They increase the rate that they collect. They, they All kinds of things. The, the cap, right? So there's ways to fix it, I guess is the point. Nobody knows what's ahead for investors, but Larry Swedro's book, Playing the Winner's Game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, offers bedrock investing principles that can help you profit in today's shaky markets. Right now, it's available for free to Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Call 888-994-6257 or email info at purefinancial.com to get yours. That's 888-994-6257 or info at purefinancial.com. Learn how to think like Warren Buffett and build a well-designed portfolio based on solid evidence and your highest interests. Playing the winner's game, think, act, and invest like Warren Buffett by Larry Swedrow with a foreword by Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA. Email info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257 to get your free copy. That's info at purefinancial.com or call 888-994-6257 for your free copy of Playing the Winner's game. Think, act, and invest like Warren Buffett. 888-994-6257 or info at purefinancial.com for your free copy. Hey, talking taxes a little bit when it comes to retirement. And Social Security is a, a very significant portion of a lot of our Social Security or uh, retirement income. And I, <laughs> there's still a lot of confusion in regards to how it's taxed. And if you can maneuver your assets in such a way Potentially, you can receive a benefit from Social Security that 
is going to be tax significantly tax favored to you. Right. Um, or it could kill you on the other side, you know, right. depending on kind of where you fall on this line here. Yeah, it's true, Joe. And, and I, I'll start just briefly on the states. Um, most, uh, most many uh, states don't, do not tax Social Security, California being one of them. And if you look at our closest neighbors, Arizona, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Hawaii, none of them tax Social Security either. Right, but that's not true in, say, Colorado, for example, or Utah, where they do tax Social Security. So, anyway, just be aware of that. That in many cases, and certainly California, where we're at, it's tax-free. So, when you can uh, increase your Social Security income and have it be tax-free, that's that's like a double benefit. But then there's the federal side, because it used to be um, it used to be that Social Security wasn't taxed on the federal side, and, and many years ago, I don't know, 15 years ago or more, maybe 20, the IRS came up with this way to tax Social Security, and it's a sliding scale, Joe, based upon how much provisional income you have. Yeah, it was in the 80s. Yeah, and so they, they came up with a concept. Provisional income just simply means you take all your income, plus things like uh, municipal bond income, which is otherwise tax-free, uh, and then you take half of your Social Security. So all other income plus half of your Social Security, that's your provisional income. And then depending upon whether you're married or single, there's this table to figure out, is your Social Security going to be taxed or is it not? And first of all, tax-free, if your provisional income is under $25,000 and you're single, there's no tax on Social Security, or if you're married, it's under 32000 And sometimes we see folks that uh, end up retiring, and that's all they got is Social Security, and they're not going to pay taxes on it because they're going to fall under these limits. Well, you know why um, this law passed is that back when it came you know, to Congress, people in these upper income limits was the 1%. So they were saying 99% of individuals will not pay tax on their Social Security benefits. Right. It's just going to be, you know, the 1% or 2%. Yeah, at, at right? the upper end. And so, right, passed. But guess what they didn't put in the bill? No inflation. There's no inflation ad- yeah. adjustment. So meaning that... So now num- you look at 30, 40 years later, $44,000 yeah. today is completely different than... forty-four grand 30 years ago was a ton of money. Right. It, it, right. Exactly. Because now you're over 25000 in single. Uh, it's twenty five to 34000 provisional income. Then half of your Social Security is taxed. It's, it's not a 50% tax rate. It means half of the Social Security that you receive will be taxable at whatever tax rate you're in. And if you're married, that number is 32000 to 44000 But here's where it gets tricky, Joe, is let's say you're under, you're $25,000 single, so no, no problem. You add another 100 bucks of income, which you're going to be in the 15% tax bracket as a single taxpayer. So you pay 15% tax on that $100 for that income, right? That's, that's $15. But wait a minute, that $100 also pushed your provisional income up, and now half of that $100 will be attributed to Social Security, and that will be taxed at 15%, right, which adds another 7%. So you think you're in the 15% bracket, and all of a sudden it's, it's about a 22% tax rate. And then it, it gets worse because when you're single and your provisional income is above 34000 it's 85% of it is taxable. So if we use the same example, that same $100 will be taxed at 15%, but now it pushes 
$100 of Social Security to be, to be taxed, 85% of that at 15%, if you're a math whiz, it comes out to about 12% and change. So your tax rate, your marginal rate, by adding a few extra dollars is 27%. Even though you think you're in a very low 15% bracket, it's and it's shocking sometimes to people. Like, for example, when they take extra money out of their IRA or 401k, and they thought they were in a 15% bracket, and lo and behold, they're paying about you know, 27% taxes, and then you got to go over and look at the state and see what's going on there. Right. Because that one additional dollar adds another dollar of income, right? But it's on the Social Security side, so Social Security is not going to tax 100% of it. They're going to tax 85% of it. So if you think of it this way, any dollar that you add is going to add a dollar eighty-five in tax. Or it's going to and, add a dollar eighty-five to your taxable income. Yeah, and that, that's the weirdest thing. So I make a dollar extra, but I got to pay taxes on a dollar eighty-five because I got pushed up above these provisional income levels. And as a consequence, what we're looking at uh, with a lot of uh, a lot of folks, even if they don't particularly have a lot of income or a lot of savings, doing Roth conversions so that when they are in retirement, they can pull money out of Roth. IRAs, which, by the way, does not add to provisional income, and they can stay out of these little cliffs, right? Or, or you know, the, the, these these points where the tax rates are higher. If you got money in a Roth IRA, it makes retirement so much better because you can manage your taxes based upon where you withdraw funds from. Right, and they could have a very significant income, hundred thousand dollars, and basically pay zero tax on how you set this up because we encourage people to push out their social security and not always because of all right well yes it's longevity insurance and you get the eight percent delayed retirement credit after you reach your full retirement age and there's some pros there but the taxation of it it just adds another layer because if i have a pool of money let's say my 401k plan i pull those dollars out i'm taxed at state levels federal level at the full boat so then it's like well, I might want to dip out of those first and let my Social Security grow because now I have a lot larger benefit and it's going to be taxed favor to me. So you have to look at all aspects when it comes to your overall retirement strategy to make the right decision. Your Money, Your Wealth brings you actionable advice to help you invest and retire successfully, but that's only part of the equation. How do you leave a lasting legacy for the ones you love? Learn 10 gruesome estate planning mistakes to avoid at our free webinar, Tuesday, July 11th at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. Visit purefinancial.com estate to register. Nicole Newman, attorney at law, and Joe Anderson, CFP, will answer questions like, should you have a will or a trust? How do you protect your assets from probate, in-laws, creditors, predators, and the expenses of long-term care? How do changes in estate tax law impact your existing estate plan? Visit purefinancial.com estate to sign up now for our free webinar, 10 Gruesome Estate Planning Mistakes to Avoid, Tuesday, July 11th at 10.30 a.m. Pacific. That's purefinancial.com estate. Hey, Joe, we've got a little thing for you. Our sound engineer is about to get married. Yes, she is. And uh, there's new rules on who pays for weddings because it used to always be the 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 uh, father and mother of the bride paid for weddings, and now it's uh, now it's a little bit different nowadays because the average age we're, we're marrying a little bit later. The average age for a woman is 29, and for a man is 31, and it used to be a lot younger. I'm just 10 years <laughs> 10 years over that mark. That's all. Don't worry about yourself here. <laughs> But I guess the, the point is that two things are going on. One is the cost of weddings are, is out of control. So the average 
price of a wedding right now nationally is $35,000. 35 grand. 35,000. What is the proper etiquette of the cost of a wedding? I don't know what the proper etiquette you is. You know, like like a wedding ring. What are you supposed to do there? Like two months salary? <laughs> I don't know. Isn't that what it is? Something <laughs> like that? Sounds sounds reasonable, I guess, but that's that's Well, how about if I have big big Al's paycheck? It's going to be a giant, that's a giant rock. It's you can't even lift your hand off the <laughs> Now I will say that the uh, the averages in rural areas is closer to twenty thousand, and on the East Coast it's about eighty thousand dollars is is the typical cost of a wedding. Eighty grand. Eighty grand. All right, right? that's a so, that's a great party. Yeah, it is, and so the bride's parents can't afford it anymore, so that's the problem. So here's the break. Well, a... Here's the breakdown right now, uh, currently based upon, I don't know, like two thousand weddings that this person studied. Uh, the Bride's parents now pay for about 44% of the wedding. The couple, the couple getting married, they pay for about the same, 42%. So it's kind of split. And then the groom's parents, yeah, they got to pay something, about 13%. So they pay a little bit. Dude, I'm going to roll in when I get married. <laughs> Father of the bride. Hey, Bubba. You're going to say, you, you need, I need 44%. I'm not putting a dime in. Yeah. We're going old school. We're, I'm old fashioned because no, I'm an old man. You're putting in forty two percent, right? Yeah. Hey, we're getting an eighty thousand dollar wedding, <laughs> and you're paid for it. <laughs> and by the way, I'm forty two years old. So, <laughs> so, so the uh, the final conclusion of this article uh, that's uh, in Money Magazine is um, um, it's there are no rules anymore. So anything goes. See tradition. Because I, I mean, I'm looking at a picture of. Um, of Steve Martin, remember that Father yeah, of the Father Bride? Bride yeah. yeah, yeah. So very good movie. Yeah, it was a good movie, and he he had to pay for the wedding himself. One of my best friends from high school is um, an orthopedic surgeon, and he practices in Los Angeles. And so, like, he grew up, you know, um, a couple blocks away from me in Robbinsdale, Minnesota. Okay. Um, but he went to school in. Uh, at Pepperdine, pretty smart kid, and then he went to Cornell Medical School, and then we he met his future bride at Pepperdine, right? So he moves back to California, and um, and her family very very successful, right? So I'm a groomsman in the wedding. There's 15 groomsmen because she's got 15 bridesmaids. I mean, he was just picking people off the street just to kind of, right? Make it look good. Just like, yeah, yeah. So it's even. Right. <laughs> this wedding, I'm telling you, was the most extravagant thing I've been to in my life. Right. So we were on we were at some country club in L.A., and so we're on like this bocce ball court, right? And we're all standing up there and the preacher's there and everyone's sitting down. It's all nice. And all of a sudden all these, um, um, gospel singers, you know, come behind. We're outside and no one in the audience could see them. And then the preacher goes, Oh, it's a glorious day or happy day. Right. And they start singing, Oh, happy day. (laughs) Everyone's up singing, dancing. That sounds like 80,000. Oh, it was more than that. Soon as the wedding's done, people—I mean, there's all of a sudden like 500 waiters with like champagne. You don't even have to walk five steps to get a cocktail, and then you walk another step, and there yeah. was like a martini bar. Got it. And then there was three different places to eat, and they had three different bands depending on what type of music that you wanted. Right. 
It was pretty, pretty incredible. So, so my wedding in 1988, um, Anne's mom didn't really have any money. So she did buy her own plane ticket to get to our wedding. So we, so we didn't have to pay for that. What did you have in your backyard? Uh, no, we had a Legion uh, Club. We had, <laughs> we, we had it at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Point Loma, and then we had the reception in the Thursday Club, which is right near them there. And the Thursday Club, uh, it's a women's club. It's actually a really nice venue, uh, but they only allowed wine. As so, we had to have. So we went to Costco, <laughs> and, and we had Chuck Bondi um, pour the wine. Uh, so we had our own little bartender, and, and <laughs> we did get catering. That was the most probably expensive part, but uh, yeah, we paid for it all ourselves. My parents paid for the the rehearsal dinner, which was great. Sure, isn't yeah. that what they're supposed to do? Yeah, that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. and they but there's kicked, no rules anymore. They, and they kicked in. They kicked in like a thousand bucks, I think. But yeah, we we basically were on our own. For the wedding. Well, this was a thousand bucks. That's forty years ago. That's a yeah, lot of that, money. That we had some extra. That's <laughs> <laughs> big, big time back then. Oh man, yeah, weddings. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, so thirty-one, Joe. That's yeah. The but how much are you spending on yours? Eighty thousand dollars? <laughs> ten? Twenty? Thirty? How many times are you hitting it? That sounds like a hundred thousand. Yeah, it's ten. She ten. Ten thousand. That's up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And who's paying for it? Yourselves. Yeah. No parents are putting in money. One dollar. One hundred. One thousand. One thousand. Okay. She got the same thing as me. Yeah. yeah. It, it meant more when I was younger. Yeah, though. right. I'd <laughs> say, well, Big house parents gave a thousand bucks. Yeah, with, with inflation, that's about five. Oh. Well, <laughs> there you have it. Congratulations uh, to Deb Reeves. She's getting married here shortly, a couple weeks. Yes, couple too. weeks. Yep. She's off the market. Well, I'm back to the drawing so board. You're, uh, yeah, you got nothing now. So I got nothing now. <laughs> All right, that's it for us. We got to get the hell out of here. We'll see you again next week. Show's called Your Money or Wealth. So, to recap today's show, there are three ways to sell your real estate, but doing so outright is probably the most straightforward. The GOP are considering taxing retirement contributions, reducing retirement contribution limits, or taking away the traditional IRA as part of tax reform. Social Security is complicated, and it's easy to make a mistake. But even if you do everything right, a portion of it may still be taxable. And if weddings these days cost $80,000 on average, you might want to elope. Special thanks to our guest, Alex Goldstein, author of No Nonsense Real Estate. To learn more about real estate investing, visit Alex's website at nonsensebook.com. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.